from the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, this is Due South on WUNC. I'm Leonida Inge. Can Black voters across the country increase their political influence by relocating to Southern states? This hour, we'll hear more about North Carolina's Black electorate and that of other nearby states. New York Times columnist Charles M. Blow visits Georgia, Mississippi, and North Carolina in his new documentary, South to Black Power. It's good to see you all, family. I am so glad to be here today. I am Sherry Beasley, and I am candidate for U.S. Senate. Sherry Beasley. How important is that race? How optimistic are you about her race? Sherry Beasley was a former chief justice in our state. She is by far the most qualified candidate, not black, not female, the most qualified candidate of all time for U.S. Senate in North Carolina. And she deeply cares about North Carolina. But Beasley did not win her race for the U.S. Senate in 2022. We'll hear more from Beasley later in the hour. Dr. Amy Steele is the president and CEO of the New North Carolina Project, a nonpartisan progressive organization which aims to expand voter engagement and access across the state. Dr. Steele, welcome to Do South. Thank you. It's certainly my pleasure to be here. You know, I, I first learned of the new North Carolina project while watching the documentary South to Black Power, which we'll definitely hear more about later this hour. Um, I was struck by your organization's commitment to really increasing voter engagement here in North Carolina. So I'd just like to know what, what inspired you to start this project. Sure. So the main reason I started this organization was because I lost my second bid for the North Carolina House here in Cabarrus County. After losing that second time, I realized that I needed to really dive into the research as to why I lost, but not just me, why 17 other Black women also lost on the same night, including the Chief Justice Sherry Beasley, who lost her bid for the North Carolina Supreme Court or the North Carolina Chief Justice seat by just 401 votes. So after doing the research, I learned that there were more than 1 million black and brown people who didn't vote or who were eligible to vote, but just didn't register. When you put those numbers together with, you know, or compare them rather with the numbers of what we all lost by the 18 of us who lost, um, it's easy to see that if only 1% or, you know, a very small percentage of those 1 million had engaged then all of our elections would have had a different outcome. So that really was the inspiration behind starting New North Carolina Project and New North Carolina Project Action First. So you really, you you want more people, especially of color, to not only be registered to vote, but that's not enough. You got to get them actually to the polls. That's correct. It makes no d- sense or you know difference if you are registered or not if you don't actually vote. So I saw just a huge deficit in the amount of black and brown people who were registered who just simply didn't show up. That was about 600,000 plus. And then there were about 400,000 plus opportunities to register unregistered black and brown people who either had been purged from the voter roster or had recently relocated to the state, getting into kind of what the documentary talks about, had recently relocated to the state, but had not changed or updated their registration status. 
So that was a huge opportunity to make sure people actually showed up and voted. So what do you think about Charles Blow's reverse migration premise? I guess his premise is like increase the numbers will increase the vote. That's exactly right. And it's a brilliant premise and a brilliant um, idea for us to really consider. Um, You know, when we see the electorate here in North Carolina, what we see is that there are um, lots of people who engage in politics and who engage just in community-based services. But we have seen this influx of Northern Black people, Northern Brown people who are relocating to our state. And it is truly changing the dynamics of our state. When they get involved, when they register to vote and actually vote, we see tremendous change. We see differences in people who are sitting on city councils that have been traditionally you know, white or one party over the other party for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. We see those dynamics change. We see public services change. We see all sorts of benefits coming to the local community just by engaging everyone in the electoral process. What does it really mean to have someone who's African-American or, you know, another minority demographic, you know, actually in political office? And does it matter if they're Republican or Democrat? You know, what does it mean to have that type of representation of Black people in office? Well, first, you know, let's put party aside for just one second, because I do think it matters in some cases, but in other cases, I don't think it matters. Um, What it means to have a person of color in a position of power is it just means so much. But what it means is that there is this position of linked fate that others can see um, in the communities whom they represent. So if I see a person who is Black, who looks like me, who potentially thinks like me or thinks very similarly to me in terms of, you know, the fact that I may have come from an oppressed background or maybe in an underserved or marginalized community or come from an underserved community, that person who is in that position of power, if they are a person of color, I at least know that I can link my fate to them. And I at least know that someone who looks like me is serving in a position of power and can bring some of the thoughts and some of the ideas and some of the perspectives I may have into that office as they make decisions about how funds are spent locally from a regional perspective, from a state perspective. They can make decisions on how federal dollars are allocated to communities. Heck, in this day and age, they can make decisions about affordable housing and whether or not, you know, developers are going to be charged appropriately as they hyperdevelop in our state. So how do you hope to increase the, um, the percentage of people of color during this year's general election cycle, you know, to, I guess to get them into office and to get people voting? Because if you remember in 2022, the voter turnout was very bad. <laughs> you know, it was definitely below 50% yes. for um, Black people. And then the divide, the gap between white voter turnout and Black voter turnout was, was it 16%? It was very high. So what mm-hmm. are your plans? <laughs> this is a big election year. Yes, it is a huge election year. Um, our, our organization's plans include, you know, engaging with the community as we always do. So in 2022, we knocked over 48,000 doors, which amounted to 66,000 plus people. We used to go to doors in 22 
And people would tell us, you know, my energy bill, my power bill, my gas bill, et cetera, are higher than my rent or higher than my mortgage. What can you do about that? Mm-hmm. And that kept coming up over and over and over again. And we're like, wait a minute. It sounds like people are telling us that we need to help fix some of their regular issues before they'll even think about looking at voting or, you know, think about politics because that's not their most important issue. So those are the things that we engage in. And that is going to help us win this election or at least have higher voter turnout in 2024. That's what we believe. And that's what we're striving for. I know a lot of those issues have been very important for a lot of Black people. And I've been reading and seeing numbers of the Black electorate, especially Black men, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they just they just feel uninspired, not excited, even about um, President Biden, you know, even if they were Democrats. And so... Some of them are actually saying, and I think the percentage is rising, well, maybe I just won't vote at all Um, because they're looking at their lives and they see it not getting better. So um, I wonder if you could just speak briefly on, you know, um, I mean, we know people need those bills paid. We know that Mm -hmm. they need transportation to work. We know they need health care and doctors who care. You know, we know that. But I still wonder what will get them to the polls, what will excite them. Yeah. So what's interesting about excitement is that we don't have this overwhelmingly excited, you know, constituency ready to just tear down the polls and vote, similar to what we did in 2008 and 2012 when President Obama was our Messiah candidate. So let's be clear. We know that that doesn't exist at this current time. Um, We don't vote for who is the most charismatic and we should not vote based on who is the, you know, the the person that looks like they're going to do a great job simply based on how they present. And President Obama did a fantastic job, in my opinion, when he served two terms. We should vote because it's the right thing to do and because it is our right and our obligation to do so because of what others have fought for in our country. So I would say that, yes, we have a challenge (laughs) that has presented itself in the Black male population in terms of declaring that overwhelmingly they're not too excited about this election and maybe they won't vote. Maybe they will vote the opposite way or the, the way that maybe people don't want them to vote. What I think is prudent upon us to do is to really listen to Black males and listen to Black females Um, but all people of color, Asian American, Pacific Islanders, Latinx friends, as well as um, American Indian, Native American friends and indigenous persons. We need to listen to what matters to people and actually start addressing their concerns. When we do that and we take care of people at their core and where they want to be taken care of, then we can start to see this kind of regular voting and regular engagement and political activity. Well, Dr. Amy Still is the president and CEO of the New North Carolina Project, an organization which aims to expand voter engagement and access in North Carolina. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Well, after the break, we'll talk to New York Times columnist Charles Blow. This is Due South. Welcome back to Due South. I'm Leonida Inge. 
Can a critical mass of engaged Black voters living in northern and western states change the country's political landscape by moving south? Well, New York Times columnist Charles M. Blow says yes. In his new documentary, South to Black Power, Blow says North Carolina can be the new Georgia. Black business creation is thriving. Black home ownership is thriving. Black people are thriving. There's a lot of inflow of reverse migrants into North Carolina. There's a lot of progressive politics, a lot of energy around politics. Obama carried North Carolina in 2008. Blow is the author of The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto. He builds on the ideas presented in that book in the documentary South to Black Power, currently streaming on Max. Charles, welcome to Do South. Thank you for having me. You know, at the beginning of the documentary, you define black power as black people having more say over how they're governed, you know, which seems fairly simple, but, you know, that term still, I guess, black power seems to make some people uncomfortable. But um, talk a little bit about that. Why is that? Well, it, it's, there's a, it has always been the case that um, the idea of black governance has made people uh, nervous. At the end of the Civil War, three Southern states were majority black, uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, there were three others that were very close and as soon as those people became free and the, and the 14, 15 amendments made them citizens and at least the black men voters, white people in America panicked because this meant that in some cases, uh, black people would be the majority of the voters. In fact, in Mississippi, in one of the uh, 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 surveys taken soon after the Civil War was over, 60% of the voters were black men. And the idea of what they call black domination scared them to death, but also made them, uh, spurred them to violence and terrorism. They refused to accept this idea that they would be governed by black people. And I believe that that, uh, that idea trickles down to today. You know, the idea of people being governed by black people it has been the reason for a lot of white flight when many uh, cities in the beginning in the 70s or so began to get black majorities, white people, many of them who had been engaged in all sorts of ways to keep those black people out uh, from redlining to, to any other ways, including in some cases violence, once they realized that they couldn't win that fight, they left because they refused to be governed by black people. So the idea that there would be people made nervous by black people having majority of the voting power is not new and does not surprise me whatsoever. I want to know when you came to this, um, to the, came to the point where you said, you know what, <laughs> it's time for me to move back south. I know you were um, reared and raised in, in, in Louisiana, but you, the, you lived in New York City for um, probably most of your adult life. And um, now you're back in Atlanta. So you saw the need to come back. And um, I guess that's where we get this manifesto. You, you know the numbers too, what that means by coming back. 
Right. I mean, I, I was in the middle of writing the book when, you know, I, w- I realized I was in some ways writing to myself and convincing myself that this is not only something that I should do, it's something that I think that black people, particularly people who are like me, are parents and want a, a different reality for our children in, in the future, that it was something that I had to do. Uh, that, that at a certain point, you have to put your own body in the fray and you have to take a stand in some way and you, you have to do things that are bigger than you, about more than you specifically, and that are geared toward community uplift. And I think um, a lot of people, well, I not only think, I know that a lot of people are already engaged in a reverse migration, but I don't believe that many of them are doing it for political reasons. The, so what I'm trying to do is just to, to, to give a jolt to what is already happening and to add an extra rationale to why people should consider such a relocation. It yeah. won't happen overnight and, and it won't be utopian and definitely will not be uh, uh, that, that way immediately. It will happen over a long period of time. And I think that that is happening, as you've mentioned already, uh, is already happening in Georgia. Uh, uh, the, the metro Atlanta area is like an epicenter of reverse migrants. Um, but I do believe also that North Carolina is seeing its own uh, influx of reverse migrants. And um, when I talk to people there during, during, in the making of the documentary, they believe that they're on the cusp of being like the next Georgia. The the most uh, tempting, however, is always Mississippi because it is the blackest state in America uh, and it is relatively small. So you wouldn't need that many black people to go to Mississippi to change it. But also Mississippi, in other ways, culturally, is one of the highest hurdles because, um, it, you know, it was the first, it was the first place that people call constitution, white people call constitution conventions to write white supremacy into the DNA of a state and everyone else followed the Mississippi example and those laws became what we now know as Jim Crow. So, you know, white supremacy succeeded to such a degree in Mississippi that it hurt everything in the state, including uh, black people, but not exclusive to black, hurt everybody. And so Mississippi regularly ranks, you know, on, on the bottom of a bunch of metrics. And it add to that the scarring of the white supremacy in Mississippi and all of the ghosts of that scarring that are left there. So it, it becomes a higher, harder uh, 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 kind of hurdle culturally and, uh, and also in terms of how you raise a family. So Mm. there's a lot of places, every state has a different sort of dynamic and every state will will probably attract um, uh, reverse migrants in different levels. When you think of Mississippi, um, the mayor of Jackson seems to be a dynamic person Mm -hmm. and has a lot of hopes and dreams. Absolutely, and you know, he has a fascinating legacy too. Uh, one of the things, uh, the, the, or the movements that I cite in the book that, that are very much like this, because there are a lot of people who had this idea, um, was the New Africa um, uh, movement. Uh, and they 
wanted to move back to southern states where black people were large percentage of the population, but they had a kind of black nationalist, black separatist concept, which they were going to make a, like a separate country. Uh, but uh, Mayor Lumumba's father was one of those people. You know, I know. He, he moved to Mississippi with the Republic of New Africa. Well, there's something definitely to be said about about legacy and also a, a lot of people who were already in the South before this reverse migration started, who really kind of, I feel, set the table so folks like you could come home, Charles Blow. Right. But also it's important to remember that the majority of black people never left the South. Right. There, there was some very uh, well-to-do, well-off black people they weren't going to leave their property and their businesses and their prosperity to go to live in a, a, a you know, a walk up in Chicago. So they stay. Uh, there were some people who believed that the fight was in the South and that they were not going to run away from the fight. It, you know, and, and, and there's something to be said for that because the civil rights movement is a bunch of Southern people. Oh, definitely. Right? You know, these, these are the people who were literally in the middle of the war. And, you know, they couldn't do it for a summer. You know, they couldn't be on, on, on the buses for a summer going to register people and then go home to safety. If they put their necks on the line, they had to go home right there in that neighborhood where people might know where they lived. Uh, and th th there's a tremendous courage, and I don't think we talk about enough how these were Southern people who did the fighting that made the progress in this country on civil rights. I'm speaking with Charles Blow, New York Times columnist, and he's also author of The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto, and that builds into this documentary, um, South to Black Power, that's currently streaming on Max. You know, I have to bring us back to North Carolina, where mm -hmm. we don't, I guess the population of blacks in North Carolina is about 23%, and mm -hmm. Georgia is like 10% more, but... Mm -hmm. um, I guess I want to talk about the movement here because you mentioned Sherry Beasley, um, mm -hmm. who ran for the U.S. Senate, and it looked like she was doing well at one point, and mm -hmm. it was a surprise to many folks that she she lost that race. Mm -hmm. And um, I just wonder, what do you think about the politics here? Because we're all over the place when it comes to um, actually trying to grow black power here. We have a Republican um black man who's the lieutenant governor, Mark Robinson, who's running for governor. And he seems mm -hmm. to be in the lead in the Republican um, um, race for that right now. So um, tell us about us. <laughs> <laughs> tell us. <laughs> well, well, you know, the one thing that I will say is that, you know, when um, people see um, your power increase, that, that is when you're going to get the most resistance. And that resistance will will uh, continue and intensify up and until you take it over and overwhelm it. Uh, and that is what uh, what has happened here in um, in uh, Atlanta and in, 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 sorry, in Georgia. That is happening all across the South. Uh, you know, you've had other black politicians run for statewide elective office in the South, whether that be senator or governor. Uh, many of them very recent, and the 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 pushback against them has been tremendous. Uh, and in some cases, like the Senate race here in uh, uh, Georgia, when you had a successful black person, the the Republicans put up another black person 
to oppose them, believing that if they fractured that black vote, that they could actually win more easily. It did not work here in Atlanta. It may work in North Carolina, we'll have to see. But you can expect tremendous opposition to black power in every way that they that people can oppose it until black people are over, able to overcome it. That is the nature of power. No one you know, in history willingly gives away the power to someone else. That is just not how it works. People will fight to the, to the death to maintain the status quo. And one thing you noted um, when you said you, you're not talking about a proposal or manifesto, um, not just for Democrats or Republicans, but it's a black power proposal. So yes. are you saying that the party doesn't matter? Well, what I'm saying is that uh, I have known and what the polls have shown is that black people generally vote in their own interests, meaning that they, you know, uh, consistently vote against people and even parties where they think that people are are uh, inviting or at least uh, abiding racism um, and for candidates who will fight against that. Uh, black people want what every other person wants, just a, a equal shot in life, uh, safety for them and their kids, uh, a, a pursuit of happiness in this country. Uh, what they get, however, is oppression uh, in multiple forms, including from state and local governments. What, what I believe is that black people will continue to vote against people that they believe support in any way a racist infrastructure that oppresses them. Now, if any party wants to not be part of the racism and the oppression, I welcome them to walk away from that and be attractive to black people as well. Until that happens, I expect black people to vote for people who say that they condemn racism. So after writing your book not too long ago and now this documentary, and, you know, you've been saying what's on your mind for a long time in the New York Times, um, tell me about maybe some of the pushback you've gotten from people about, um, about this project and, you know, about what you're trying to do and make people think about, especially black people. Are people, are people well, calling you racist or, I mean, well, I, I mean, can see some, I can see, I know, I can see some, some pushback forever. forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I don't, I don't, you know, so whenever someone says, oh, isn't this kind of an, uh, you're trying to establish some sort of ethno state, uh, isn't this, uh, the segregation, um, and I always say to those people, every state but Hawaii for the last 90 years has been a majority of plurality white. Were you upset about that? What, did you call that segregation? Did you call that racism? There are you know, something like seven, I think, states right now where 90 plus percent of the population is white. Do you see that as a problem? Did you think, do you think that is racist? Do you want to campaign against that? Uh, if you pitch out 30 years, um, several southwestern states will be majority Hispanic, not majority brown, majority Hispanic. That's just not, that's how migration is happening. That's how uh, uh, family growth is happening. Is that a racist thing that that's going to happen? No, it's just going to happen. Uh, 
why is it, why does it bother you so much that I would say to not create a new condition, but just to restore one, that these places were already majority black. Mm -hmm. The only reason that they stopped being majority black, or one of the major reasons they stopped being majority black, was white terrorism. Are you saying to me that I should be satisfied to let the terrorists win? And even when they were majority black, they were one, two, three, four percent majorities. Half the people there were white or non-black. Why does this bother you so? Once you can explain to me why that bothers you and why none of the other circumstances I just mentioned bother you and do it in a way that makes sense to me, then maybe I can listen to you. Well, before uh, we wrap up this conversation, I have to have you speak about home. Is it Gibbsland, Louisiana? Gibbsland, yes. Gibbsland, Gibbsland, Louisiana. And, and so are some um, members of your family now um, running for political office? Um, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, we had, uh, I think my cousin was going to run for me. I'm not sure he did. My my another cousin ran to replace my mom on the local school board, and she won. So <laughs> that seat is still in the family. Uh, so, yes, they, they, they stay active. And I, I love that because it just shows to – it demonstrates to me that there's, there's all this political engagement, particularly among young people. A lot of the mayors of these uh, majority black cities in the South are just really young. And uh, all that young energy already exists here. They just need help. Mm. I, I ask about your family because I just want to know how optimistic you are th about your proposal and um, if, if if you have any other signs that is catching on, I, um, that's why I, m I noticed that. I was like, maybe it's catching on at home first, or maybe <laughs> or maybe Charles Blow is going to run for office in no, Georgia. No, Charles Blow is not running for office. Oh, okay. However, you know, I don't think you will know. I I think that that migrations move so slowly that you, unless you get a burst of something, you won't know. The Great Migration unfolded over sixty years. I wrote this book four years ago. You know, like so. Uh, I don't know if you will know if you've added to the numbers or how you would quantify that. What I do know is the Great Migration is the reverse migration is happening right now. Uh, every uh, uh, poll and every um, census that I see sh it shows no sign of stopping. Black people are moving out of northern and western cities, either to the suburbs, but many of them back to southern states. Uh, and that continues to happen. Uh, we don't know when that will stop. I don't think anyone knew when the Great Migration would stop. Uh, and we don't know if that will, in the future, if that will be, be stronger or the, the reverse migrants will slow. We just don't know. So I, I don't expect to have um, a result or, or be able to quantify any impact that I may have on that. I know, that, however, that it is sparking conversation around this issue and sparking conversation about what black power and, and place actually mean. And I think that that is incredibly useful and encouraging to me. Well, as I grew up hearing, power to the people. <laughs> Charles Blow, thank you so much for um, speaking with me on Do South. Coming up, we hear from Sherry Beasley, 
former Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, about her 2022 run for the U.S. Senate. This is Due South. This is Due South. I'm Leonida Inge. In 2022, former North Carolina Supreme Court Chief Justice Sherry Beasley ran a historic campaign for the U.S. Senate. She is the first Black woman nominated by a major party for a U.S. Senate seat in North Carolina. I'm Sherry Beasley, and it's time for something different, for someone who calls it like they see it. That's what I did as a judge when I held dangerous offenders accountable. And in the Senate, I'll hold Washington accountable, too. Due South got the chance to sit down with Justice Beasley January 11, 2024, to unpack the barriers to entry for Black candidates and the role of Black voters this election. Sherry, welcome to Due South. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. You know, I'm so glad that you're here today. You know, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while, and there were two recent pieces of media that further, like, inspired me to reach out to you. The first was Charles Blow's documentary, South to Black Power, where you were featured in a conversation about the political landscape for North Carolina's Black voters. And then the other was a profile on the site, the 19th, titled Sherry Beasley on the Promise, the Work, and the Peril of Campaigning as a Black Woman. Wow, what did you think about both of those (laughs) in depicting not only Black voters, but Black women, you know, vying for seats like you attempted, like you tried to hold? You know, um, it's a small universe when you think about the number of women, Black women who are running um, for federal office, for U.S. Senate, for governor, which is a statewide office. It's, It's a small universe. And so... I know so many of these wonderful women across this country. Um, And what I'm confident about is that we absolutely stand on the shoulders of Black women who came before us. Um, And I take great pride in that. The piece by Charles Blow, um, I didn't know he was there. Um, (laughs) And I didn't even know about the documentary. I started getting calls and texts from from friends um, and supporters, literally from across the country, saying, "Hey, there's this You're piece on HBO. Here. You should know yes. about it." But I had no idea. Once I, I did get a chance to see it, and um, as I look back on the day, I very much vividly remember being in Goldsboro that day. And um, it looks like Charles Blow is actually sitting in I shot of where I'm standing and from where I'm speaking, which I have no doubt that that's true. I remember it being a, a, a typically warm summer day, um, and uh, but I never spoke with Mr. Blow, and um, but but thought that his um, that his hypothesis was pretty interesting. Very interesting. Interesting enough to make sure you were in it. Like he had when he talks about the South, and he talks about the current electorate and those vying for higher political office, he couldn't leave your campaign out. Well, I appreciate you (laughs) thinking um, that it was that important. And it was a very important campaign and race. And I think it was important for North Carolina and really for this country um, to be able to really um, appreciate and value that um, leadership must uh, be diverse. um, and, And we can do that here in this state and in this country. 
you know, really, what inspired you to run for U.S. Senate in the in the first place? Like, were you approached to run? Was it something that you always thought you would possibly eventually do? I did not always think I would possibly eventually do that. I've been a judge, right? I've been a right. judge for 22 years. I started out as a trial judge in Fayetteville, Cumberland County, and uh, before that, a public defender in Fayetteville. And um, it was really, you know, in North Carolina, judges are elected. And so I had had uh, five elections, two local, three statewide. And, and so the Senate race was my fourth statewide election. I thought, frankly, that I would be a judge for the rest of my public service. And, um, and I was approached by a lot of folks thinking about what would be good for North Carolina and in some way thinking that I might be able to, um, to, to win and, and to really provide that service for our state. Um, and then ultimately, it was a matter of certainly being prayerful and speaking with my husband and our twin sons and our friends and family and our community about how this works um, and what this means for not just us, but really for the state. And so um, it was it was it was um, a process, really, of thinking this through and whether or not it was the right thing for me to do. Um, and, and so I'm really glad, ultimately, that 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 we all um, collectively made the decision for me to run, and, and the experience was, I think, the right one at the right time. You know, I have to ask you, do you have any regrets running for U.S. Senate? Not one. Not one. Um, North Carolina is an amazing state. I think people from outside of our state believe that it is a small state, and it's the ninth largest in the nation. And in all of our 100 counties, there are amazing people who really do care deeply about what happens in this state and in this nation and who really do seek um, comfort in knowing that people who offer themselves for service are uh, in it for the right reasons, uh, who really do care about um, the issues that impact our families and communities across the state. I'm very grateful, not just for the experience and the opportunity, but for so many people um, who didn't have to, but who extended themselves and offered their support. You know, you were the first Black woman nominated by a major party for a U.S. Senate seat run in North Carolina. So did that make you feel like, like that was a hurdle or um, even a superpower, you know, or, or something else entirely? Certainly not a superpower. <laughs> there is nothing magical about <laughs> these elections. It is... Um, very hard work. Um, it was 19 months of grit, uh, and um, I was literally running all of the time. Um, it, but I do know that it matters. It absolutely matters, and it certainly uh, matters for um, the next African-American woman who comes along. So, you know, North Carolina hasn't sent a Democrat to the Senate in more than a decade not since Kay Hagan, you know, was elected in 2008. And so what do you think it would take, say, for a Democrat to secure a seat um, in North Carolina in the U.S. Senate? You know, what I um, know is that it is so important for people to be deeply engaged. And um, you're specifically asking about a Democrat, but I think the reality is— um, 
Democrat or Republican or independent, um, but but people who uh, truly share values of folks here in the state um, and who uh, embrace um, issues that people really care about and who aren't afraid to tackle the tougher issues. I mean, so many people are really suffering in this state. Um, so many people are greatly challenged. So people are, many people are really afraid to be engaged or believe that they have, um, in a lot of ways, been discounted and disregarded. And I think it's important, not just for Democrats, but for all of us and for all elected officials to um, not just say the words, but to really commit to assuring people that they matter, um, that their voice matters, um, and that the cares and concerns that they have for their families and their communities not just matter, but matter enough uh, that they're undertaken in these uh, respective governmental entities um, and addressed fairly. So you don't think it's more than just what people say or, I don't know, even how they look or where they grew up that you know, some voters are going to vote a certain way <laughs> no matter what, you know, because I think, um, you know, I've read and seen that one reason you were sought after um, to run for this this post for the U.S. Senate, it was because, you know, your background was impeccable. You know, you were a judge. There was no controversy. You know, there were no scandals. You know, everything was, um, you know, you would think what one would want you know, um, in a candidate to represent them. So I have to ask, you know, you know, you were considered to be more, like maybe a more progressive candidate, you know, than Democrats would typically run in like a state they call a purple state like North Carolina. So how did you, um, how do you think you secured the nomination? Again, I have an idea how you secured the nomination, but in retrospect, do you believe it was maybe your progressive stance on key issues that ultimately, you know, hindered the final run, you know, for the actual seat. Well, progressive is never a label that I ever adopted for myself. Mm -hmm. And so, I, you know, people will say lots of things about um, who I am. What I stood for was for families. Um, I, and, and seriously, I, I think often black candidates are labeled progressive just because right. they're black. And I, I, I that's not a label that necessarily... Um, that really, I just don't think it, I just don't think it, I think what's more important than the label is um, what matters to families. And, and in terms of who people vote for and which candidates they find more attractive, I do agree with you that I think uh, my judicial background mattered a whole lot not because I was progressive, but because I'd been in a courtroom for 20-plus uh, years. I'd led a whole uh, judicial branch of government, um, really making sure that justice um, was accessible to people all over the state. Um, and understanding that accessibility is deeply important, that there's not a person who should be left out of the process. Well, I know that our lieutenant governor, Mark Robinson, a black man who's running for governor, um, hasn't really held an elected office before. Um, 
not a lawyer, <laughs> not that you have to be a lawyer to run for public office. Um, and actually, you know, there's like a very long list of contradictions that some folks even I know they keep a file of some of the waffling back and forth that, you know, he may say um, at times. And he won lieutenant governor. And um, he seems to be a top contender for the Republican nomination for for governor. So it makes me um, it makes me think that, again, sometimes, you know, you're not always labeled progressive because you're black because he's clearly not progressive. All of us have to be in a place where we vote our values, where we spend our values, where we um, do the research. As often it's difficult to do to um, support people who um, support our interests. All of us have to do that. Definitely. <laughs> that, that, I, I, no, when I think no, I think about it because um, I think of previous elections and even say when Hillary Clinton, you know, was running um, for president, and it came up over and over that say, hmm, um, a lot of women didn't vote their own best self-interest. They didn't vote for her, and she did not win. I don't suggest that getting the information is easy. It's not. It really isn't, um, and in in a in an age where um, social media and technology often dictate um, news availability, it can even be increasingly more difficult to get good information about who candidates are. Um, it takes some homework. It does take homework. I I just also know. I mean, I I spent a lot of time with people in this state. And people want to know more than just that you hear them um, or that you show up talking about your own concerns, um, but that you're prepared to really be responsive um, to what's happening in Cabarrus County or Northampton County or Mitchell County. I mean, you know, people, there are lots of similarities Uh of great people across the state. And 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 often the labels don't even really fit. I mean, when you think about issues like healthcare, I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're liberal or conservative. I mean, everybody um, wants good health care for themselves and for their families and for members of their communities. You know, I want to go back to the documentary that Charles Blow, the New York Times, put together because he talks a little bit about all of that. But he also, what do you think about his his premise that is he thinks it's gonna take for a lot of people or even black people who live up north, maybe their families migrated to many northern northern and midwestern states during the Great Migration. But he says there needs to be a reverse migration back for those folks to help, you know, <clears throat> build the um, electorates in the South probably where they should be so that um, black candidates can actually have a chance. Not at mayor, for example. You know, there are a lot of black mayors now, but just for the higher state, council of state type offices and even federal offices. Um, what do you think about that? Is it going to take that? I, I don't want to at all dispute his research. He's done it, and and I haven't. I really <laughs> haven't. I've not done that. That's, I have not done that research. What I do know um, is that right now, 
in this moment, when we are engaged, when we vote, when we show up, it matters. It fully matters. And so, and, and the other thing, too, is while I, I, I appreciate that race um, can be a construct, but it is not uncommon for uh, people in Wayne County, regardless of race, uh, whether they're black, white, or Latino, often have shared values around certain issues. So I think we do ourselves a real disservice um, if we believe that if we if black people only vote for black candidates or uh, there has to be some. And we would trans- never win anything. Just, well, there has know. to also be transcendence right. because we don't operate in a microcosm and we often have shared values. But to understand that um, and to really appreciate the opportunities that that presents to electing people who share our values, I think is really golden. Former North Carolina Supreme Court Chief Justice Sherry Beasley made an unsuccessful run for the U.S. Senate in 2022. Last fall, Beasley was a resident fellow at Harvard Kennedy School's Institute of Politics. You've been listening to Do South. Our producers are Stacia Brown, Coldell Charco, and Rachel McCarthy. Denarius Thomas is our technical director. Aaron Kiever, our executive producer. For Jeff Tiberi, I'm Leonida Inge. This is North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.